0: Acts chapter 10, thinking about evangelism over these few weeks. I have three weeks with you, although I won't get to see them out. Um, Next week was going to be the last week in a short three-week series on what we learn about evangelism in Acts, but next week I'm busy trying to find a job for myself. So um, Ali, you'll be in the capable hands of Ali, and he'll round out this series by um, speaking on Acts chapter 19. So we're in the middle of it, and we thought last week about the fact that God has given us in the gospel certain basic facts, basic truths that are at the heart of his message to humanity, and that it's something of our responsibility to know that and to relate it, to be witnesses to the power that God gives us in saving us, and then to share that with others. And then this week I want to look at what happens in Acts chapter 10 because. The gospel doesn't really spread apart from relationship, is really what I hope that we'll see. In some ways, I'm anticipating an objection. And I don't know if you've heard it. I don't know if you've felt it. Um, I don't know if it's anything you've given any thought or time to. But sometimes there is an objection that, well, if God is who we believe he is, and he has all the characteristics we think he has, such as being almighty, All powerful um, in control of the universe. You know, he's got the the power to actually make the heavens continue to revolve day day by day and to feed and clothe uh, all the creatures of the earth, including you and me. Well, if he wants people to be saved, if he wants people to know the message of Jesus Christ and to uh, come alive spiritually in response to that message, well, isn't he able to do that? Well, did, I mean, does that really mean you and I have any role in that? Do we, do we have to evangelize? Isn't God more than capable of making that happen to people in their hearts in and of himself? He's all-powerful, after all. And you know, logically, it's, it's a fair enough objection. Except for the fact, what I hope to see through Acts chapter 10 is, yes, point one is true. God is all-powerful. And in that all-powerfulness... He gets to decide how he's going to have his gospel spread. And the way he has decided in his sovereignty is that it'll spread through people speaking and in turn people hearing. And that doesn't happen aside from human connection. You know, language is so basic to who we are. And I heard someone say this week, I think it was um, a sociologist that said that language is kind of what sets us apart from everything else in the creation. You know, this ability to um, not only communicate and, and make meaningful sounds and words to the other, but then have, the, then have them receive that in, in, in their mind and then be able to actually put these things together and build societies and cultures on top. It's so powerful. It, it, it's It's one of the ways in which we reflect the image of God. It completely sets us apart from everything else around us. And at the very center of all that is Christ, the logos, the divine communication, showing us what what communication from God is really like. And that's how he's chosen. It's through communication that he's chosen that his message is going to spread. So this is important. And I think that just working through this chapter very naturally, Acts chapter 10, I think that the passages that we read divide themselves into kind of three sections that help us see some of the contours of the relational evangelism. So I want to look at firstly our hope for evangelizing that undergirds it from the beginning of the chapter and, Cornelius. and then I want to look at, secondly, how the relating in evangelism actually works. And then thirdly, I want to look at the, the purpose, why we're evangelizing, you know, what, what our goal is in it. So hope for evangelism, the actual relating in evangelism, and then our, our purpose, the end goal of our evangelism. So firstly, the hope that undergirds our evangelism we see at the beginning of the chapter <coughs> in verses 1 to 3. We learn about this man in Caesarea. Uh, It was a large poor town in the Roman Empire, and he's called Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's in the Italian regiment, and we find out that his family were devout and God-fearing. Okay, so he's a man of the empire. He's, He's pretty powerful. He's pretty high up. He's sort of, you know, chief inspector level. Like, he's Got some resources. It's thought he might have had around five or six hundred men under his command. Um, he's also a good chance he's retired um, at this point in his life. A lot of retired centurions and soldiers within that part of the empire. <clears throat> he's, and you've got to remember the context of the fact that we're in early Christianity, in Acts, and we're in a period of time and a place in history where the the People who have God's revelation have been the Jews. They've been mostly in tension with the Roman Empire. That's been their enemy. There's been huge aspirations that uh, whatever the kingdom of God will be, it'll look like the Romans getting dealt with and sorted out. And here's a guy who's a very powerful part of that empire and that system. So, you know, in some sense, it would be easy to think he's a part of the problem. And, And he's fearing God. And there's obviously something going on with him because he's going to the, along with the Jewish faith. He's a God feeder. And what that meant was that he's somebody who's really taking seriously the Jewish faith. He's not gone the whole way. They were called proselytes. So they would be circumcised and they would, you know, take almost on ordination rituals. They would really embed themselves. They'd probably be, be baptized as well. And they'd become full converted Jews. So he's not there, but he's, he might be what you and I would call today a seeker. You know, somebody who's showing up at church, they're really, they've got questions. They've got, they're playing in their own time. They're maybe even reading the Bible in their own time. They're really interested in what this faith has to offer. And this is where Cornelius is in the ancient world. And he's part of a, a band of people, actually, who are kind of, and seem to, they're in the Gospels too, even Roman centurions. They seem to get something about God and his revelation. And they seem to be deeply interested And Peter is kind of used to fill in the blanks, if you will, the details about that faith and the fact that he's got a lot of knowledge, a lot of faith. Even we have in this, he's praying to God regularly and God actually responds in this portion. God hears those prayers and sees his acts of service and God enters into a kind of dynamic exchange with him where it leads to him actually believing in and trusting in the gospel. Now, I actually don't see any tension here between thinking God's in control of everything. Because one of the things that I think we learn is, um, especially in the the Reformed faith, uh, we've got a high view of the fact that God draws sinners to himself. And that's just based on what Jesus said. Jesus said, um, A, I will be lifted up and draw people to myself, and also in the Gospel of John that nobody can come to God except the fa- nobody can come to Jesus except the Father draw him. Uh, you know, people in and of ourselves, the vast majority of humanity, we're sinful and we don't we don't seek God. We don't want God. We don't want him to come in and mess up the order we've created for our own lives and tell us what to do and give us a, a rule book to live by. People don't want to give glory to God. That's part of the curse, But people who start to uh, show an interest in this way, okay, sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. But in enough times, and in this example here in Acts, God is working behind the scenes in the quietness of someone's heart, and he's bringing them to life. He's, if you like, and the Bible uses so much imagery across the Old and the New Testament uh, that's drawn from agriculture, And horticulture and quite often God's working with people is compared to either a vine or to a seed growing and the implication is is that there's a lot going on that you can't see. There's a lot going on that if you just look on the outside you won't see anything and you sometimes need to wait and Cornelius seems to be one of those people who God is working in quietly behind the scenes in order to start to bring them to life in their heart. It's like God is doing the drawing with them and he is responding, which is the only way any of us can begin to get an interest in God and pray and seek and want to go to church. And he is responding and God honors that and draws him to himself. What does this have to do with us today? It can be dangerous to take too much of Acts and be very prescriptive and go, okay, well, that happened in Acts. Wouldn't that be great to have the early church experience? Let's just do what they did in Acts. You know, not, not everything is there as a command or a prescription. But I think we can make an argument that while not everything in Acts is maybe to be repeated today, well, let's take the basic thing of if this is God working in someone's heart, a sinner, to draw them to himself. Is God still doing that today? Absolutely. And so, if God is still doing that, here we have one example of what it looks like that we can flesh out and draw some lessons and inferences from. And so, if God is still doing that today, firstly, for the likes of Cornelius, it's worth you and I knowing that there are people, and we might not know who they are all the time, whom God is working in. There are people who might be, as you and I see it, whatever it looks like today, part of the problem. You know, he's a man of the empire. There might be people in your, mind, your life and my life, they're part of our circle, and you'd think, oh, whatever they get up to or whatever they're involved in, they would never be seeking God. And you never know. If you start to have a conversation with them and ask them what they believe about, the li- about life and death and the universe and what their hope is, if any, you never know. They might be going home every night from whatever debauchery they take part in or, you know, if they vote from the opposite political party to you so you think God could never save them, (laughs) they might read their Bible searching it at night. They might have big questions about God. You just never know, a bit like that seed in the background, you never know where he's working. And so that's just worth knowing. God could be working anywhere in anyone. That's our hope for evangelism, is the fact that God is still doing that today. You and I don't know where it is, and that's the exciting part, because we can get involved. And and in some sense, there's no losses. You can have a punt. You can ask the people around you. You can ask about questions about what they think about (laughs) life and death and the ultimate things, because, hey, you might find some gold. God might be doing that in some of the people you least suspect. That's our hope for evangelism. And then secondly, I want to move on to the actual relational part of this evangelism. How does that work? Well, the second portion that we read that starts in verse 20, halfway through verse 23, we find out that there's the back and forth, the God speaking to Cornelius, and then God coming to Peter and telling him, you've got to go. And Peter does three things. Well, firstly, he goes and he's obedient. He goes in obedience to God's command. He started out with them and he goes on some of the other believers from Joppa went along. He serves. It's, it would be easy to miss this. He basically hears a command from God in response and, and God is basically saying, look, go and interact with these people. There's some hunger for the gospel here. There's some hunger for the things of God. Go and fill in the blanks and go and show them and and Peter's more than happy to do it. And there's a huge relational component to this, because we find out later that in verse 33, uh, when Cornelius is relaying what happened to him, he goes, I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Cornelius expresses gratitude that Peter actually does this. You know, in a sense, Peter didn't have to do this. Okay, you know, was scary probably to not have done it, given God directly commanded him in a vision. But the point is, is Cornelius obviously recognizes, well, you didn't have to. You had a choice. We all do. And he chose to go out of his way, to travel across, across, put himself out a bit, and actually relate the gospel to Cornelius and those gathered with him. He serves him lovingly. Service is a very powerful entry to the gospel, Christ is described as the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve. And then we're ambassadors of him and we take on that persona. Be amazed at the doors you can open if we're willing to serve people. Show them kindness, do things for them. And then you might or you might not, but you might get the opportunity when they ask you, why are you doing this for me? Why are you serving me? Well, I love the Lord and he he came as a servant and he serves me every day. He serves him. But then he also, you know, it's not just all kind of love and kisses and hugs and he he corrects him, he challenges him. Cornelius meets him and he falls down on his face in reverence. And this is all the interaction and the relation. But Peter made him get up, he says in verse 26. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. This is really interesting. So you've got this guy, Cornelius, he's he's seeking God. He's got some interest in the things of God, but he doesn't have the whole picture. He's obviously got some really wrong ideas about spirituality and God and deity. You know, he thinks, and this happens elsewhere in Acts. People think this with Paul too. Oh, my word, he must be a God. And so Peter corrects him. He challenges something of his belief system and his understanding, And we can do that too, and it might not be direct and harsh, it doesn't have to be, you know, but you and I, if we engage on believers, we'll often find, probably today, a pagan mix, a kind of hodgepodge spirituality. You'll probably find people, and I've certainly found this, have, they might have a little bit of, well, I think Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that's good. But I also think some of Buddhism is very good, and I also do the horoscopes, and I find that that brings me something, and you can actually bring gentle correction of going, well, you know, actually Jesus says he's the only way to God. You know, there's certain things that we can't get around. We were thinking about last week, the facts, and we can, and hey, people need those facts in order to have eternal life and connect with God, and we can lovingly bring them in. He corrects them as well, but then Lastly, and probably most importantly, what Peter does in this engagement and relationship is that he proclaims the gospel to them, and nothing, I don't think, there's nothing more central than that, and he goes on his speech from verse 34 onwards, he begins to speak, and we see, don't we, repeated some of the facts that we learned last week? how, in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he was around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him, and we are witnesses of everything he did. And then they go on about him being killed and resurrected. It gives them the gospel. It's powerful. It's got the power to transform people, as again we were thinking of last week, and he doesn't shrink back to it, from it. And there's so much, this is actually what converts Cornelius and his friends. And did you notice how Cornelius actually gathers a little group here? He called together his relatives and close friends in verse 24. Cornelius has a sense of excitement, of anticipation that, that God will actually show up and do something. That... This, perhaps, whatever Peter's going to bring, the facts of the gospel, that it's going to have power. Now, you and I don't have an apostle. We don't have a Peter that we can wheel out to go and speak to our unbelieving friends or our seeking friends. You know what? You have something just as powerful. This is the apostolic testimony. This is the final record that God has left us of who he is. And the word of God is powerful powerful. It divides, it cuts through, it says in the Bible, it's got a lovely figure of speech, cuts through the soul and the spirit, goes to the very center of people's being. And you know what, friends? I don't fully understand how that happens. When I even look back on my own conversion, I don't fully understand how God did that. I don't have to. One of the implications for us is definitely is going, you've got to believe that exposing people to this word, to this life-giving truth of Christ in the gospel and in the Bible that it's got some power, that it's got the power to change people's lives. And sometimes we probably draw back from evangelism, especially from shading the scriptures, because we think, oh, it's a bit weird, it might not work. It'll work. It does work. Maybe not all the time, maybe not in all our engagements, but it's still converting people by the masses today. And this is the only thing, this relation, this engagement, some people speaking it, the words of truth found in Scripture and the Gospel, and some people hearing that, we're told in Romans 10, that is how God has determined, right back to the beginning, that's how God's determined people are going to get saved. What can you and I do about that when we think, how can we relate in evangelism? A bit like what goes on here. How can we follow that example? How can we serve people? There's almost unlimited ways, and it'll differ according to our contexts and what our circle of friends are like, but, you know, sometimes it's saying to somebody, do you want to read through the Bible together? Do you want to read through one gospel? That might sound shocking and bizarre to you, but I was listening to an evangelist this week who goes on to uh, university campuses, and her, over, her name was Becky a wonderful woman of God. And her overwhelming testimony was that when I go onto campuses, it's, I find that there are people who are unbelievers and they are crying out for this. They would love someone to read through a gospel with them. They would love someone to just speak to them about the Bible. But all the people that they know that are Christians are too afraid or they don't want to. And in some sense, it's a great tool of Satan is just to shut us up and to make us so scared of, oh, they're so going to, um, and the fears are always the same. They're, they're going to malign me. They're not going to like me. And also, they're not going to like it. And, and you know, we're invested in this. So, fair enough. But friends, we can have confidence because people actually want to relate over this stuff. And God has promised us that that's how it's going to change lives is by you and I engaging others and relating these facts to others invite people to church it's a really basic one it's basically what cornelius does in every sense this is a church because churches were just gatherings and houses and acts it's a bunch of people gathered around the word of god and that's what peter comes to bring you notice you know peter doesn't give anything he's had i find this amazing he's had this revelation and vision to go from heaven but What he brings them in terms of the 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 facts and the information he brings them isn't anything from that. It's not saying, I have a word from God from you. Well, it is, but it's the facts of the gospel. And that's where the power is going to be. That's where you hope that if you invite people to church, they're going to hear the gospel, and that's where the power is. There's nothing more powerful than that. There's no greater one-two knockout that could come for someone's heart. And this is basically a church gathering, and he invites his friends and his relatives. It's not a bad idea. Maybe invite someone to your focus group. Just let them see what it's about, and just pray to God's Spirit who makes this word effective and say, God, I'd love you to work on them. Can you make it effective to their heart? Can Can you cut through them to the soul and the spirit? And then lastly, and very briefly, why do we do all of that? What's the point? Am I just telling you because I want, you, I want to see some of these seats filled next week? Or, um, well, my career, quote unquote, is in the church. So I hope that there's a church to keep paying my wages. It's none of that. It's none of that. In verse 46, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. That's while Peter was speaking and they heard this message. Those who'd come with Peter were just amazed because the Holy Spirit falls. It was poured out on these Gentiles. The church enters a new age. But Cornelius' friends and relatives were saved. And then what they do is they start praising God. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 says it's impossible for someone to do that, to say Jesus is Lord except for the Holy Spirit works in their hearts and their lives and gives them the ability to do that. So this is the real deal. And friends, for you and me, this is why we evangelize. This is why we want it. There's loads of good reasons for evangelizing. And you know, church growth is one of them. Man, who wants to be part of a dead and dying anything? Of course we want the church to grow. But there's higher levels than that. Then we love people. We want them to experience what we have. We don't want them to go to a lost eternity. So love for our neighbors, a massive one. But then, you know, I think that Consistently with the Bible, there's a higher reason than that, and I think we see it here. We want people's lips to be opened and unstopped and flowing with praise for God, because ultimately, when you when you go all the way to the top of the levels, God is the supreme being. God is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And he's the only being worthy of all the creation's worship. And if you and I evangelize people and they trust in Christ, they are people who will praise God. And God will then get more glory that he is due from part of his creation. He's due glory from all his creation. Every healthy cell division, every meal that everyone eats on earth, every day, God is due glory and he doesn't get it from a lot of people. He doesn't have any less glory because of it. In some sense, the end goal of all creation is that it says in the Old Testament that the earth would be full of the Lord's glory from sea to sea. That's why we do it. So new people will give glory to God and in his sovereignty and in his control of things, he is determined that he will use weak people, imperfect people, people who don't have it all together, people like Cornelius who only understand bits and pieces of it. They don't have the full revelation but he'll use us to give them the facts to witness to the saving power of God and to relate to people, to communicate with them the powerful and life-changing gospel. May God bless his word to us and give us all the power to relate to others with the hope of his gospel.